Again, let me welcome you one and all and remind you that we are in the midst of looking at the book of Acts, this thing called the church, uh, particularly in the first century, trying to understand how do we learn how to be the church based on what the church was like in that first century when it really was established after Jesus left. So we're trying to have a greater understanding of how that works. We looked at leadership last week. Now we're looking at living it out in the marketplace, what that looks like. And if you're familiar with seminary teachers and teaching, when it came to preaching classes, and public speaking too for that matter, a lot of times you're told, make sure you have something in the beginning, the first two minutes, to get their attention, (laughs) to really help them want to listen to what you have to say and, and make it something that really grabs people. Because if you don't, you're going to lose them and they're going to just drift off into outer space and not pay attention. I don't have a clever beginning. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to read the entirety of this passage. We have a long passage to read. So I'm going to challenge you right up front. Turn in your Bibles, look at this, because it's a story of the Apostle Paul trying to talk about Jesus in one of the most intense marketplaces right in Athens with some intense philosophers and thinkers. So I I want that to be our intro. I want you to follow with me as I read in chapter 17, starting at verse uh, 16. We're going to read from 16 to the end of the chapter. So this might not be a good way of starting. (laughs) Open your Bibles. Follow with me as we hear What happened in the first century church when Paul was in the marketplace? Hear now the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. Well, let me preface this. I want to encourage you as you follow along in this reading. I want want you to see for yourself what's happening. And I have a couple questions I want you to be thinking about as, as I read this. One is, How might this be like our world today? How might you see some things, yeah, this is what it looks like. But also ask yourself, how might I engage a similar world today? So be thinking about that as you hear this read. Verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own peers have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some, of men, but some men joined him and believed, among also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. I read an article a number of years ago about a survey endeavoring to lay out the religious climate of America. And it was filled with a lot of statistics regarding the different religions represented and how they were faring. What was going on with these different religions in America? I was struck by one statement concerning the fastest growing religion in America. According to that survey then, do you know what the fastest growing religion in America is? The fastest growing religion in America is no religion. Isn't that interesting? The fastest growing religion in America is no religion. People were identifying themselves as clearly spiritual, but seeing no need for religion or formal institutions. It became so intensely personal that there is no need to turn it into another societal gathering. It's all personal. You know, again, in a sad way, in this country, I think we are reaping what we have sown. Everyone is entitled to their own God or their view of God, if he exists at all. It's a place where it feels like there are as many gods as there are people, isn't it? There's so many voices. A place a lot like Athens. A place where there are so many gods. As I mentioned earlier, I think this picture is one of the most clear pictures of what it looks like to engage the secular world to see how Paul 
brought the things of God to bear, and in particular, how he brought the person of Jesus Christ to bear. You know, volumes have been written about this particular passage, and I could preach many sermons on this, but I'll save you the burden. I'll be taking a slightly different approach on this in terms of how do we understand the whole experience the Apostle Paul had on Mars Hill in Athens. And hear me now, I'm I'm not primarily going to be giving you a manual of operation in terms of how to win friends and influence enemies. The danger is seeing this as a list of methods to be duplicated and therefore to be able to win arguments and save people for Jesus' sake. How can I shut people down and shut them up and make them believe Jesus? That's not what I'm going to do for you this morning. I want to see this not so much as what we should do, but much more what we should be and what we should have in order to engage and point others to the Lord Jesus. With that in mind, I I, I want to look at Paul's example to better equip us as to a witness in the world that that this world is clearly lost and doesn't even know it. Let me suggest three components that, that I think must be there if we're going to have any lasting impact in the marketplace in the world around us. First, we're going to examine the Christian mind. What does it mean to have a Christian mind when we function in this world? Then I want to look at the Christian's voice. What comes out of our mouth? What are we supposed to be understanding when it comes to speaking that? And finally, I want to look at the Christian's effect, the impact Christians can have and should have on those around them. So the Christian mind, the Christian voice, and the Christian effect. But let's look at that Christian mindset that I think Paul is reflecting here. The Christian mind. To have a Christian mind is absolutely foundational. And it's essential to have the kind of effect we need to have. You might say that's a no-brainer. But listen. Listen to what an author said about the condition of the Christian faith in this country over 50 years ago. Listen to what this man said about what he saw in terms of the Christian mind. Quote, there is no longer a Christian mind. Oh, there is still a Christian ethic and practice and spirituality. But he says, but as thinking being, but as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He or she accepts religion but rejects the religious view of life which sees all earthly issues within the context of the eternal. In other words, he's saying this, my Christian faith has become one of several compartments of my life rather than the central part of all of my life. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but that's one of the most important things. But I'm also this and this. And this, I've got wonderful compartments, and God is one of those wonderful compartments. This guy is saying, that's not a Christian mind. (laughs) That looks just like the world. A Christian mindset has the focus that everything comes through the filter of Almighty God and his truth and his life. To have a true Christian mind or biblical worldview, you need two things. You need the word of God the Bible, and the other is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
You can't have one without the other. Friends, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? You can't have a Christian mind unless you have the living word of God applied by the spirit of God every day in your life. To see this fleshed out, look again at verse 16, the the opening of this passage. What does Luke describe that Paul was going through? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was waiting for the apostles to come and collect him. While he was waiting, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. You cannot understand the rest of this passage unless you understand Paul's mind. The the Greek word for provoked here, it's another very intense verb. It means being stirred up or or angry or, or irritated. You're deeply affected. Paul was deeply moved by what he saw and what he felt. Everywhere he turned, there was another idol. Lifeless images representing man's desperate attempt to connect with some kind of spiritual realm. He was broken. Everywhere he looked, people were lost and trying to find God in some, in some material way. And think about it. Before Paul spoke a word, what did he do? He observed. He kept looking around. What do I see? What do I see? He thought about what he saw. He internalized the whole thing. Something was going in, on inside of Paul before anything came out. He was looking at life through the lenses of what theologians call an eternal perspective. He was looking at what he saw through the filter of who God was and what he knew about God. And his heart was not only aching, but so provoked, so moved, he almost couldn't stand it. Now, Paul wasn't some fanatical wacko, but he was a man alive to God and truth because of Jesus. Paul, remember, Paul knew who he was and he knew who God was. He could not separate his life from his Savior. His Christian faith wasn't part of a wonderful movement. Hey, let's all be wonderful Christians and live happily ever. No, he was, he was alive with Jesus. He couldn't separate anything, anything from the living Jesus. But he also knew how lost he was before the Lord called him. And because of that, I think Paul had a growing burden for those who, like him, were lost and blind to the true God. Interesting, one commentator writing about this puts, puts it this way. He talks about evangelism. Evangelism meaning telling people about Jesus. This commentator said that this way. He said, evangelism starts with Christ-like pity for people who, regardless of their sophistication, are lost. <laughs> to really be an evangelist, you have to first Feel the brokenness and the lostness of people. Paul felt that as well as seeing it. That's a good place to pause. How do you see life around you? Professing Christian, how do you see the world around you and this marketplace of idols and brokenness? Are you... Are you like everyone else? Are you on a crazy treadmill trying to make sense of a senseless world? If that's your plight, 
then in a sense you no longer have a Christian mind. You're just as desperate as the rest of the world. Friends, get back to God's word. Ask the Holy Spirit, open your eyes anew to the world around you that you can see what God wants you to see and not be caught up in that world. Paul's grounding in God's word and his spirit really gave him the foundation, didn't it, to move effectively to open his mouth. And that brings us to the second contingent here, the second component, the Christian's voice. You've got that Christian mindset. You understand, you see, you're affected by it, and now you want to speak into it. How do I speak into it? When you and I as Christians speak into the world, I think it should not primarily be a negative reaction to what's going on, but it should be an attempt to connect with others to show them an entirely different way of life. Listen, this is a biblical theme and and, uh, acronym that you need to be aware of, but Paul's voice came... Came out, what came out of Paul's voice came out of his mind or heart. And this is a true principle that Jesus himself declared in Matthew 12. He said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That which controls your heart and mind controls your life and your mouth. You speak according to what you know and understand and believe. Your mouth reflects that. Do you see why the Christian mind is so important? The more grounded you are in God's word and his spirit, the more natural and real your voice will be. I think Paul's example shows us that power and purpose. He used his voice in a twofold way, to to engage or inquire and then to declare. In both the arenas, the synagogue and the Areopagus, he applied the same method, didn't he? Did you see what he did? He started by first wanting to understand what people were thinking and feeling and why. He looked around and he would ask questions. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? How much, how much people will actually listen to you if you first listen to them. Isn't that amazing? You want people to listen to you? You want people to hear your voice? Ask them a question. (laughs) Listen to them. Paul wanted to hear their voices. What were they speaking of? And what was in their minds and hearts? His goal wasn't to reason people into the kingdom of God. His goal was to show a clear picture, as clear as possible, of who the Son of God was and the fulfillment that we all look for and need. Conversion, hear me now, conversion was God's role, not his. Starting at verse 17, I hope you see that, that he reasoned in the synagogue in the Areopagus. He reasoned with them. Reason and philosophy seemed to be king in the culture at that time. The theme of the day, I hope you caught that too, was let's not assume anything. Let's just speculate. Let's imagine and let's draw our own conclusions. And they, they lived to share ideas. Wasn't it interesting in verse 21? How would you like to make your living this way? 
all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing what? Doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. Wouldn't you like that? Hey, let's just sit around and talk. We don't know what we're talking about, but let's just keep talking. Let's keep sharing ideas. What do you think? What do you think? Let's pull our ignorance. That's what they were doing. Yet the more Paul referred to Jesus and God, isn't it interesting and more intrigued his listeners seemed to become? The new idea of Paul appeared to be more than just an idea, but something very real and personal to him. It even got to the point, wasn't it interesting, where they wanted to give him an audience. They wanted to hear more about these ideas and this Jesus. And in verse 17 or 20, he says, we wish to know what these things mean. We want to know what these mean. That's a great setup, isn't it? <laughs> hey, you've been talking about some really interesting stuff. And about this guy, Jesus. Hey, would you tell us what this means? <laughs> you can see Paul going, yeah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> can I tell you more? This is now when Paul uses his voice to declare. And it's interesting, Paul latches, look what he did. He latches on to the idol of the unknown God. And he uses it as the connecting point to point them to Jesus. And I hope you see what he did logically in just a few brief minutes and a few brief statements. He wipes out the entire need for all these idols around them. What you worship, he says, as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Do you hear what he's saying? What you guys say you have no idea about, let me tell you. This is what it's all about. He declares that this God they are searching for is none other than the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the judge of all things. And by the way, he says, he can be known. He's closer than you think. He's right here. And he says, the one who will come to judge is the same one who makes the true God known, the resurrected Jesus. And at that point, you saw what happened when he talked about this person of Jesus and this resurrected Jesus who would come. That became too much for them to take in. <laughs> Mockery and sarcasm was woven throughout their debate, but it now came to a head. This didn't seem to fit in to their philosophical insights and their categories. So what do you do with somebody like that? Send them away for a while. <laughs> You're stirring our heads too much. We're not quite sure what... Would you go away for a while? We're going to call you back because you're getting under our skin. You're causing us to think about things we've never thought about before. Friends, if you would look close again at this incident, isn't it interesting? There's not a, there's not a massive happily ever after moment. After this great wrestling match of great minds, there was no mass conversion or transformation. But as Luke says, some men joined him and believed, and a woman as well. His voice spoke, but only God could change that. This leads to our third observation, I think, from this text. We need not only to understand the Christian mind and, and the Christian voice, but we need to understand the Christian's effect. Clearly, changing people's minds and hearts is not really our responsibility. Our responsibility is presenting Jesus clearly and compassionately. 
The more you and I are grounded in God's word and led by his spirit, the better the odds we will speak and live more clearly the person and work of Jesus. And in turn, the odds will be better that you're going to have an impact on people around you. But here's the catch. Here's the thing to think about. You and I don't live primarily to have success stories or to change someone's life. We are not called primarily to be successful. We're called to be faithful. Be faithful to who God is, who Jesus is. God is the only one, the only one who can truly affect change. And Jesus addressed that to his critics in John chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus said about how people are changed. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Nobody can be changed by God unless they are called by God. But the beauty is that God promises his word will not return void. You might not see the effect, but God does. Paul was having one big effect throughout this whole ordeal. Yes, a few lives were changed forever. And isn't it interesting that even when, Paul, when Luke records who was affected, he puts their names. Their names are in the Bible. Dionysius. Demarius. Wouldn't you like to have your name in the Bible? <laughs> These people were converted. Their lives were changed. What a powerful thing. You, you must know, um, you just never know what impact you are having or will have when you have that Christian mindset and you speak clearly and compassionately the things of Jesus and you just trust God with that result. You just never know. I remember years ago, this was when in my younger days when I was a runner and I would run some half marathons in Disney World. Just That's a whole other story. Um, but I remember one time trying to register online for this race. And I went to register and it was sold out already. And I was bummed out because I'm trying to prove myself, you know, see if I can run. And so I went online and I went to this, this runner's chat area and I said, does anybody know? And this woman responded to me. She said, you know... I, I've signed up. I don't know where you can go, but she said this. She said, I'll be praying a place would open up for you. <laughs> I don't know who this woman was. So I wrote back to her and I said, hey, thank you. I'll be, uh, thanks for telling me about that. And, and I think I'll be praying as well. Immediately, one of her friends <laughs> jumped in on our conversation. And listen to what this woman said. This is kind of a paraphrase. She wrote right away, right away. She said, I don't believe in God or prayer, and if I did, I certainly wouldn't pray for something as trivial as a race slot, but rather the children of Africa. Ouch. <laughs> and I'm just trying to find a place to run. <laughs> and I want my immediate response, I wanted to write back <laughs> and tell this non-Christian who you are and who do you think you are. I'll put her in her place. <laughs> but the Lord called me up short. I wrote back to her after a few minutes and instead I said, I don't know who you are, but I thank you for your observations. And I want to assure you that I don't see God as some vending machine to get my selfish needs met. But instead I see prayer as a place to trust God with big things and small things like a race slot or cancer. 
I went on to tell her that I, I tend to be selfish. And I thanked her for reminding me of that. <laughs> I never heard back from her. She immediately deleted all of her entries. But I wanted my conscience to be clear. I wanted her to know it wasn't about me getting a race, but about the God that I loved and I knew and I trusted in. I have no idea what that impact is. Friends, you understand the impact you can have on people and not even realizing it. So what do we learn from, from this about the church of Christ and about living for Christ? Uh, instead of boiling it down to those three steps of winning people for Christ, let's boil it down to Jesus. <laughs> the Christian church is in existence first and foremost to worship God and to reflect his son to a dying world. Y yes, that's, that's done in many ways and in many places, but it's all for the same reason. Why do we do this? It's to present Christ and him crucified. I want people to see and to know Jesus, the risen king. That's why we do anything that we do. The beauty of the Christian faith for us who have trusted Jesus is that the pure mind and heart of God has been revealed to us through his word and the tender voice of his son who not only spoke to us, but he died for us. And through him, he now has an eternal effect on us. So here's your homework. The pastor can tell you what to do. Two things. Go home and read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I want you to ponder anew what Paul meant when he said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The other homework assignment is simply this. Consider that the practice of this has to first and foremost be in your home before you run out in the world to make it a better place. It's got to happen in your home. If the word of God, the mind of Christ is not functioning, if the voice that you speak in that home, if the impact you are having is not for the glory of Christ, don't, please. I don't care how much a good Christian you are. Don't go out in the world telling people about Jesus. Make sure God wrestles in your heart to live that in your home. Because if it doesn't work in your home, it's just empty words. Oh, friends, for us, me and myself included, the prayer is that God would make us people, make us a people who think, speak, and live in a way that others would see and they would be affected not only by us, but by Christ in us. May Jesus Christ be honored in how this church lives for him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have first come to us. And you've come to us in the living word of Jesus. And more than that, you have come to us with the voice of Jesus who has spoken to us through his word. And we thank you that you have had an impact on our lives that you guarantee will last for eternity. The work you have begun is a work you will continue. God, make us a people who believe that, 
but even more than that, make us a people who live that so that we, we engage the world. They would see that we have the message of what everyone needs to know God, to know Christ and his resurrection. Jesus, do that work in our hearts and lives, even this day. We pray in your name. Amen.